Look, I understand what a phenomenal moment this is for you. Do you? Can you? I mean, to you, space travel is commonplace. But to us here, I mean, in one flash... You've learned you're not alone in the universe, that space travel is possible, that a zillion of your empirical facts about science, religion, are wrong, or completely suspect. I do understand. I'm not exactly what you expected, am I? I always thought that when we finally made contact, first contact, that the beings we'd meet would be so radically different. You're so much like us. Welcome to Welcome to the Uncharted Territories. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And we're here to talk about the second episode of Farscape. That is correct. We are going on production order instead of airing order, so... Depending on how you are watching this show, this may or may not be the second episode in your lineup, but this is, in fact, the second production episode, I.E.T. And, I mean, this isn't just some, like, nerd obsession where I'm like, we have to go in production order. This episode makes sense as the second episode, and it makes a lot less sense as the seventh episode, which is, I believe, how it aired. Yeah, I don't get why the network would air them like this. I mean, this this is the same thing that happened to Firefly, right? Where they just aired it all willy-nilly. Yeah, I mean, the idea, with Firefly at least, was that that pilot was a real slow burn and they wanted to start out with a more action-y adventure episode, like the train job, but it totally ruined, you know, the concept of character development. And I don't know if it was the same thought with this show or not, or if they just don't care because it's sci-fi. It seems weird, like, shows have order. There are plots that need to go in a particular order for them to make sense. I, I Was this less of a thing with older sci-fi? Because the Star Trek you showed me has been pretty episodic. This, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I was about to say that. This was less of a thing with older sci-fi. In fact, this show, this, this episode, this aired in 1999. So we're right on the cusp of shows starting to be serialized instead of episodic. Mm. I mean, if you really want a stark difference of this, a, a real good way to do it is to watch Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Because Star Trek The Next Generation, you're still episodic. You can jump in wherever. You can watch the Highland Sex Ghost episode as your very first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and not really lose anything. Yes, that is something someone could do. Yes, but with Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I mean, the first episode is setting up the premise of the long-running plot that's going to go on for the whole show of, you know, Cisco being the prophet. Are there really non-comedic, non-serialized shows anymore? I don't think so. I think shows are really built for for being, you know, mass-consumed now. Um, I mean, I guess maybe procedurals, but even procedurals seem like they have ongoing plots that you can't just air in any order. So procedurals, I think, tend to have, like, the procedure, but then an underlying plot. So, you know, X-Files really pioneered the the mythology episodes versus the monster of the week episodes and i think that's probably still how a lot of procedurals do it i'm basing this on the last procedural i was obsessed with which was bones well i'm thinking about more law and order svu where there are individual cases but sometimes the detectives have ongoing stories 
and how that was sort of less of a thing in the earlier seasons and it became more of a thing as the show went on. Oh, I mean, the core of Law & Order Mothership's longevity is the fact that you can jump in anywhere. You can be in a hotel room and turn on any episode and just be in the episode. Yeah, I I feel like maybe shows should go back to that a little more. Don't get me wrong, I love an ongoing plot, but, like, it's also okay to have a show that just does episodes of the week. I mean, honestly, I feel like there are some shows that would benefit from having more episodes of the week. Like Jessica Jones? I was thinking, like, Once Upon a Time, but yes, definitely Jessica Jones, which is a show I liked, but it needed to not just be the main plot for, also it needed to be less episodes, but... Well, I mean, there could have been more episodes if more of them had been... Yeah, just not her dealing with the main plot, because it just starts dragging after a little while. And then you have to come up with excuses to extend the plot. Like, she had Kilgrave in that weird water room, and it's like, this this is unnecessary. You're adding so much to this story that doesn't need to be there. It's, it's like my thing with action movies, where I feel like every action movie would work just so much better if they cut out one set piece. Yeah, once you said that to me, it was like, like glass shattering, like that episode of How I Met Your Mother. Now I can, well, I, I've actually always kind of found action sequences kind of boring, but now when I'm watching an action movie, or specifically like a Marvel movie, I'm like, could have cut this sequence. This, this battle could have been half as long. And it would have worked better. You would have spent less money. And again... I mean, maybe we don't need to be telling the most successful movie franchise in the world how they should be making more money, but it would be way more enjoyable for me personally if they would listen to us. Well, that's like why Shazam is probably the best DC movie, because they didn't have the budget the other ones did, so they just had to tell a story with people. Or, uh, alternatively, why Deadpool... Why the first Deadpool movie is good and the second Deadpool movie is not. Okay, we're going to go way off track if I explain why the second Deadpool movie is bad. So, like... There are a lot of reasons the second Deadpool movie doesn't work. Yeah, message me if you want me to tell you why the second Deadpool movie is bad. Farscape. Farscape, I-E-T. Written by Sally Lapidus, Hmm. who... I love how you said, hmm, like you know who that is. No, it's just... are, are there a lot of women writing sci-fi? Oh, yeah, no, good point. There are not a lot of women writing sci-fi, and one of the things I was going to say about her is that her background isn't really in sci-fi. Um, most of the things she's written have been sitcoms. She wrote a lot on, she wrote a lot on Family Matters <laughs> and Step by Step and Charles in Charge. Oh my! She also wrote on Titus. The Christopher Titus sitcom that I think was grossly underrated. I feel like I'm always hearing people talk about what a uh, underrated gem that was. It was. It absolutely was. It was... I, I think it was a sitcom that would really fit more into, like, a modern Arrested Development mold than the sitcoms that were happening at the time. A modern classic Arrested Development mold, right? Uh, oh, please. Yes, of course. <laughs> Not whatever that was that they put out. Oh, my. Um, But, yes, she wrote on Mad About You. She wrote on The Nanny. Ooh. Yeah. Fun fact about Mad About You. I watched a non-insignificant amount of, of Mad About You, I think, when I was in middle school, and I, I tried revisiting it recently, and it is, like, nigh unwatchable. It's like if Seinfeld was gentle comedy. That sounds terrible. And it's funny, because I watched it at the time. 
so the director on this episode was Pino Amenta, who has quite a prolific directing career, but just like last week, I'm going to have to assume these are mostly Australian shows because I have heard of not a single one of them. Hmm. I'll just read some titles to you. All right. 800 Words, Winners and Losers, The Dr. Blake Mysteries, <laughs> Worst Year of My Life, Again! I, I don't know. Packed to the Rafters, All Saints... He did write, he did he did direct two episodes of Last Man Standing. Oh, recent. But let's not hold that against him. Who? Ooh. Ooh. Actually, Last Man Standing has been on for a long time. I, oh, I, wait, I, you I know honestly... what? I'm realizing now. I'm re- I'm not even going to cut this out. Usually when I'm wrong about something I cut it out. I'm realizing now this isn't the American Last Man Standing. This is the Last Man Standing that Last Man Standing is based on because it's 2004. Oh, I was thinking of Last Man on Earth. Oh. Which is, I, I realized while you were talking, is a completely different show. No, Last Man Standing is the terrible Tim Allen conservative comedy. Ugh. Oh, God, yeah. The one that got revived on Fox because apparently liberals got it canceled after, what, eight years? He's like, liberals are trying to kill this conservative show. You got eight fucking years. Yeah, but it was based on a, on a foreign show, and I'm, I'm actually realizing, looking at the year, that he didn't direct the American one. He directed the... I want to say English, but maybe it was Australian. I don't know. Point is, I don't believe he has any American credits going through these uh, these shows. But that's okay, because, as you know, Farscape is an Australian show. All right, so Farscape. Now, one of the things that I mentioned that I like about Farscape is that it is a space show that is not human-centric, and this is the episode that really sets that agenda, which is why it's important that it be the second episode. Mm. All right, let's begin. So the DRDs are freaking out. They're all like, R2-D2 noises. Well, the DRDs are freaking out because there's a siren going off in the ship, and the siren is making John have, like, face twitches. This is another thing that's going to reoccur in Farscape, where alien stimuli is going to affect John in ways that it doesn't affect other people because of his human anatomy. Yeah, I do like how Aaron shows up and she's like, what the fuck is going on with your face? And he's like, it's a twitch, I can't help it. And she's like, well, maybe if you weren't so weak, you wouldn't be twitching. Yep, yep. So basically, as you will recall from last week, the ship they are on is an escaped prisoner ship. And it turns out that there is a siren that alerts the peacekeepers to their location when they escape. So, oops, that's going off now, and they are in deep shit. It's like that episode of the show with that lady in the red dress that you were talking about last week. I was gonna say it's like that episode of Battlestar Galactica, where the siren is going off every 33 minutes. Yes, except this siren's going off continuously, and it is really annoying. I actually very much appreciate that pilot says that he's altering the vibrations inside the ship so that we can't hear it anymore, but it's still going off, because this would be very annoying if we had to keep hearing this siren blaring. Yes. John's still twitching, though, because... Yeah. It's it's still happening. It's just they can't hear it now. Also, I think, honestly, Ben Browder will take any opportunity he can to do over-the-top physical acting. Which, good... One of my issues with him in the pilot was that he seemed much less interesting than friend guy, but now that he's not, now that he doesn't have to be like Joe Everyman, he, it seems like he has a lot more room to, you know, 
be funny. Yeah, he really does get to be his own person as the show goes on. So they send the DRDs in to the tiny portal on Moya. The little grates that you remove so that you can get into the ship's guts mm-hmm. are tiny. Like a human can't really fit through them. Like a skinny human can like slither through them. But the kind of thing you would have on Star Trek where you were just walking through the Jeffries tubes, like throwing a party in them, like stretching out like that Da Vinci painting. Mm. What's that called? The one that the whatever man, the Shuvian man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. Yeah. Unlike the Jeffries tubes in Star Trek where you can just stretch out like that, their their portals are tiny, which makes sense because everything's done by the little Roombas, the little DRDs. So oh, what they need is a greased up Scotsman. <laughs> what a disturbing thought. It's too bad we're not in Star Trek. They had a Scotsman they could grease up. Yes, they did. I, Although, I assumed that's why you said that. No, that was a Simpsons reference. Oh, 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 weird. Weird synergy. Anyway, the device protects itself. It attacks anything metal that comes near it, which includes the DRDs. Mm. Yeah, so basically, they're SOL. They can't get near it. They can't bring anything metal near it. Also, it's really attached to Moya's, like, nervous system. So even if they do just go in there and rip it out with their bare hands, it will injure her so much that they might just fall right out of the sky. Mm. Which seems difficult to do in space, but I don't know how space whales work. Okay, well, I mean, that was that was my terminology. Uh, I guess they'd just be floating dead in space, which... Yeah, being inside a giant space corpse probably wouldn't be great. Don't they have little ships they could fly? I mean, I, I guess you don't want to abandon Moya. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, they could abandon Moya on the little ships. Moya does have its own shuttles, and they have John's shuttle, and they have Aaron's prowler. But instead, John comes up with a plan, which is to find a planet in the system that they're passing that has water and land the ship into water Mm -hmm. to muffle the sound while they figure out what to do. Which, of course, brings us to our our first Futurama reference. Whale biology. Oh, no, I guess it's our second one, which is how many atmospheres can this ship take? (laughs) Well, it's a spaceship, so anywhere between zero and one. But this is our chance to learn about Leviathans, the class of ship that Moya is, that they are space whales, born Mm. in space, live in space, and sometimes the young ones will fly really close to an atmosphere, like just skittering off the top of an atmosphere, but they do not go on planets. They are not meant to be on a planet. Mm. Yeah, okay, I I guess that makes sense, but... This needs to happen so the episode can happen, so they're going to go to a planet. Right. I'm just I'm just expressing the stakes, hmm. which, which interestingly don't really become a thing because the stakes are like, you know, leviathans don't go on planets. So the problem should be that when she's on the planet, she can't achieve, she can't achieve escape velocity again. But that, that's not what happens. She's fine. I also don't get why, like... Why don't they just take one of the little ships and go to the planet? No, no, they're sinking her into a swamp on the planet. Oh, so to that, hide her from the... To hide the siren. Oh, okay. To muffle the siren. And as I just said, they're putting her in a swamp, which Rigel freaks out about because he does not like swamps. They point out that he's aquatic and he says that aquatic creatures like water, not swamps. There's nothing you can breathe in a swamp. Mm. This is actually going to be a reoccurring trait for Rigel. Really, like, fear of mud. Fear of a lot of stuff. Yeah. 
from the very few episodes I've seen him in. But the mud thing's going to come up specifically. I guess it, it would it would be like if you were going to some place that was like it's like air but too thick for you to breathe. Well, it actually reminds me of having grown up in Florida. It reminds me of when I'm in really high altitude places and the air is just really thin and I'm like, how do people live like this? So the ship crash lands into a bog and Aaron falls into John's arms, which Yeah, um, they get slammed into each other. A lot of body slamming in the first couple episodes. Uh, that's not going to stop. But we get a beautiful wide shot of Moya on a planet in a swamp just sinking down into the bog. And then we get the intro, which I, I just want to say, there's a lot of, I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this, horrifying music in this show. Like, all of the music skews really horror movie. Okay. Which, I guess, ties into the plot of the show, but... It's all sort of alien and uncomfortable. Yes, I never thought of it as horrific. It definitely does feel alien. Lots of, uh, what's that one instrument, that weird instrument? Theremin. Yeah, lots of theremins. Honestly, it's got a real Doctor Who vibe, which also has a lot of horror influence now that you mention it. It's like theremins and throat singing, and it's it's effective at setting a mood, but it is sort of a horror mood. Yeah. So they're almost completely submerged. You're right. They should have trouble taking off later. Yeah. Well, it's okay. I mean, as long as we're going to, like, nitpick here real fast. No, wait. I'll wait till we get there. We're not going to go all cinema sins. No, no. I, I do enjoy how that's just been a very easy shorthand for nitpicks that don't, you for, know. For bad faith criticism. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about nitpicks like that are... If the show isn't or, or movie isn't powerful enough that you ignore that, that you suspend your disbelief, then those nitpicks really are a problem. But a show really has to earn suspension of disbelief through otherwise strong writing. Mm. If there is a nitpick, but it's in the service of telling a better story, it's bad faith to, to pick at it. But if it's in service of a shitty, cliche story that, you know, you didn't actually take the time to write out, like Gili, then, you know, maybe fair game. Or if you're CinemaSins and you're just finding stuff to talk about because you need to fill 15 minutes of content because that's how YouTube works and it rewards you for longer videos. Yeah, you have to bow down to the algorithm. So you come up with all this bullshit and then for some reason movies feel like they need to respond and that's how you get Beauty and the Beast 2017. Yeah, basically. Sorry, Farscape. <laughs> so now we get to the part that I, I I know this kind of irked you when, when we were watching it the first time. Mm-hmm. They decide that, you know what, they're just going to have to cut the beacon out of Moya. And I'm going to repeat the same joke I did last time. It's not rocket science, it's brain surgery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it is. But they are trying to figure out if there's anything that can be used as an anesthetic on Moya. And... Pilot says that there's no such thing as an anesthetic for a leviathan. Oh, oh, but there is an element that leviathans aren't allowed to carry, chlorium, because of the way that they numb leviathans. There's no such (laughs) thing as an anesthetic for a leviathan, except for this one thing that is directly an aesthetic for a leviathan. What the fuck? Okay, but I, that's, that's world building. Because... Well, we find out that there are six forbidden cargoes. I'm assuming that never comes back. 
That never comes up again. I mean, maybe it does and I don't remember, but honestly, that never comes up again. Okay. I mean, it sounds cool, right? There are six forbidden cargoes that cannot be carried on a Leviathan. One is Chlorium because it numbs the Leviathan. But I think it's good world building in showing how these creatures are treated, right? They're not treated as living creatures by a lot of the people who inhabit them, even though they are. Mm. So, no, there's not an anesthetic because nobody would use the word anesthetic on a leviathan because nobody would care about a leviathan except for its ability to move us from place to place. Oh, but this thing does make it not feel, and that's why this thing isn't allowed near it. Okay. Justified. By happy coincidence, it turns out that there is some chlorium on the surface of this planet. Wow. Yeah. So John and Aaron and Dargo are going to go out onto the planet and find the chlorium while Zan and Rigel stay behind and try to figure out what to do, you know. And Aaron's having some difficulty. John's like, come on, let's go find this stuff and do the thing so we can keep on prison escaping. And she's like, yeah, I, I like literally a couple of days ago, I was you know, in this military, and now you're expecting me to turn against them. And, uh... John, John rightly points out, um, they turned against you. But she's like, like, look, this is a thing I grew up with. This is a... I was fighting for a cause I believed in. You can't just expect me to flip a switch and suddenly be okay with working against my former co-workers. And John's like, well, I'll try. Which, honestly, is... One of the things in, like, Fire Emblem when you can recruit enemy soldiers sometimes where you kind of have to wonder, like, okay, you were just working for them and now you're murdering them. That's kind of messed up. Also, one of the, I feel, not weak points, but one of the weaker things in the Captain Marvel movie, how she was suddenly just cool with killing all of her old co-workers. I think it's one of the strong points in the new She-Ra, the way that... Adora's conflict is not just papered over. Yeah, it's good in the new She-Ra, and maybe it's just because in Captain Marvel they didn't really have time to explore it because it's a movie versus a TV show, but She-Ra does a really good job of, like, these are people that she spent a lot of time with. These were her co-workers and her friends. She knows them, and they're, they actually they feel betrayed by her, and she feels like she's betraying them even though she knows she's doing the right thing by working with the Resistance, and it's... Honestly, something I wish the Captain Marvel movie had explored more because it doesn't come off great that she's just like, well, I'm totally cool with murdering all of my old friends now. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe Captain Marvel should have been a TV show on Disney Plus instead of a two-hour movie. I mean, I like the Captain Marvel movie. I know, I just need more of it. Mm. So this discussion between John and Aaron brings up and highlights for the audience that neither of them has a home, yeah. right? John doesn't have a home because he was... Shot through a wormhole to a distant part of the universe. And Aaron doesn't have a home because she has just been excommunicated from it. Which sets up the next moment where they exit the ship and John looks out in wonder on the fact that they're on an Earth-like planet. Isn't it weird how every alien planet looks exactly like the same patch of land in California? Okay, yes, fair shot at other science fiction shows. But honestly, this is going to be one of the few Farscape planets that actually looks like Earth. Okay, that's good to know. They landed in a swamp, and John says it looks like... Bama. Louisiana. John says it looks like Louisiana, 
or Dagobah. And no, honestly, I love this because he says it looks like Dagobah. And Aaron's like, I don't know where those places are. And John's like, you know, Dagobah, where Yoda is. And Aaron's like, I don't know who that is. And John's like, he's a guy, a little green guy. He trains warriors. And Aaron's like, okay, I have no follow-up questions. Because you know what? People usually don't have follow-up questions to your stupid references that they don't get. That's true. People just sort of want to move past them because Aaron doesn't want to sit there while John explains Star Wars to her. Yeah. But I'm assuming she's going to have to at some point. Well, I mean, yeah, probably. So, I wonder, does John ever get caught up on, like, alien pop culture stuff? Because he's such a big pop culture guy, you'd think he'd be like... That's a really good point. And no, no, he doesn't. Hmm. That's another thing that a lot of people actually point out with things like Star Trek, that even when it acknowledges pop culture, it doesn't seem like they have any of their own. You know, nobody's making new art. Yeah, the, the thing... Again, I have a very limited frame of reference for Star Trek. It's mostly just episodes you've shown me. Uh-huh. But it seems like everyone's weirdly obsessed with Earth before a certain point. Right, like the holodeck games that we see them play that reference pop culture. You've got, like, Robin Hood and Sherlock Holmes. Like, no one's written any new classical music in the past thousand or so years. Yeah. For a big legs guy to play on his trumpet or whatever. Riker? Do you yeah. mean, is Riker who you mean by big legs guy? Yeah. All right. Interesting. Because he sits in chairs all weird. Like a bisexual. He has, he has large legs and a beard. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say beard guy, but I guess that probably would have got you to Riker too. Honestly, trumpet would have gotten you to Riker. I got the instrument right? Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> so back on the planet... We get another moment where John gets some characterization. Neither Dargo nor Aaron can figure out how to work the tricorder. I mean, the particle analyzer. Mm. But John, because he's the scientist and not the warrior, like, immediately figures it out. He does fill a very specific niche here. It is kind of interesting how the other people aren't really science people. Right. Because you've got two warrior people. You have... Zan, who's a psychic priest lady, and then you have a useless rich guy. Okay, he's a rogue slash diplomat. He has his uses. Mm. But yeah, John is the bard, but also, you know, the scientist. But his show of competence is interrupted as they see a bunch of lights over the horizon. Well, the, you know, people who live on this planet come looking for the alien spaceship that just crashed in their swamp. They start to head off, but then Space Wharf runs right into the lights. Okay, so they decide that Dargo and Aaron will distract the military guys so that John, the one who knows how to work the particle analyzer, can find the chlorium. And then they'll all meet back up at the ship. Hmm. So Dargo jumps out and is like, hey, you guys, over here! And then, like a good tank, because that's what he is. And they run at him, and then Aaron, off to the side, starts making noise so that then they stop chasing him and start chasing her. And then basically, they lead the guys away from John so that John can do his job, which is to, you know, find the item they need to fix the ship. This is sort of very anti-Star Trek, isn't it? Well, I mean, in Star Trek, they would already know everything about everyone on the planet because they have an actual military ship and not just an escaped prisoner vessel. Mm. So they would already know 
what the people on the planet looked like and all of that. And then they'd be all like, ooh, Prime Directive. And so then... And then they'd immediately ignore the Prime Directive because, again, I've only seen a few episodes of Star Trek, but it seems like... You know what it reminds me of? What? Uh, It reminds me of Personal Gain and Charmed. Where it's like, we can violate it as much as we want as long as we pay lift service to the fact that it exists. It's more like the Prime Guidance. No, but they would actually disguise themselves as the people on the planet first, and then go down to the planet and pretend to be natives, and then that would fail, and then they'd be like, eh, fuck it, prime directives for when things aren't difficult. Back on the ship, Zan and Pilot are figuring out how they're going to remove the device. Pilot has traced out where all the connections are, and wouldn't you know it, it is like dead center in Moya's brain, so, you know, it's going to be really, really hard to pull it out. Mm. Pilot starts talking about how there's a sleeping agent that they create to get the thing implanted into the brain. Because Zan wants to know how they were able to implant that without Pilot knowing about it. Hey, Pilot, you know what that sounds like? An anesthetic. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, no, they they used a thing that puts the ship and Pilot to sleep when they put it in. So Pilot was not awake when they... captured it and put the collar on and put this beacon in there Mm. yeah that's why he didn't know hmm yeah hmm hmm indeed but i know i said that landing in the bog didn't really give them any stakes but it it did give them a time limit because it will presumably crush moya so they, they have a time limit that they have to get back between zero and one atmospheres exactly so Back on the planet, the sun has started to come up, and John has found the location of the Chlorium, which is a farmhouse that has a giant satellite array on the roof. Hmm. Yeah. So, John goes into the house with the satellite's barn. He goes into the space barn, and he looks at the space stuff, and he's like, oh my god, it's so much like Earth, except the filament in this light bulb is different, so not that much (laughs) like Earth, I guess. Yeah, the filament in this light bulb is a slightly different shape. I am on an alien planet. I mean, yeah, it's it's a very, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what they're going for there, because when he holds it up, he's like, oh, maybe this is alien, but The point is that it's so much like Earth, and honestly, it does look a lot like an Earth light bulb. It's a tiny bit different from an Earth light bulb. So did he just never go to other countries when he was on Earth? Because, oh my god, look at how that plug is different. I really am on an alien world. Why is everything just a little bit different here? (laughs) But his musings about whether or not this is exactly the same as Earth are interrupted by his communicator. Dargo and Aaron are trying to give him an update, but... This communication is interrupted by a boy. Yes, which is a shame because he definitely hears gunshots coming over the communicator before he gets interrupted, but he drops it. He loses the communicator in the barn and runs to hide while a small boy enters the barn. Small boy who we're going to call Elliot, even though that's not his name. Yeah. I thought he was going to factor a lot more into the plot than he does. The small boy walks into the light uh, in a very set-up shot so that you can only see his face, but not the sides of his head. Yes. Also, he gets a real, like, hero's silhouette. But the real point of this shot is that it shows John crouching behind the 
grain drums. I don't know what those are. But he's, like, crouching behind the drums in the barn like an alien. Because, of course, John is the alien. Yes. I like how they they did set up the barn has these, like, very wide slats. So the light that hits the kid's face is just hitting his face and the rest of his head is in shadow. And then when John comes out, he, the kid turns his head and he's weird alien ears. Yeah, so last week we praised how this show has really alien-looking aliens because they are Muppets, essentially. Mm-hmm. But the aliens in this episode, because this episode is about how John is the alien now, are basically just humans with, like, a long piece of cartilage that attaches the bottom of their ear to their neck. And, like, maybe sharper cheekbones. Yeah. So, John has his E.T. meets Elliot moment, but the kid freaks the fuck out, runs into the main house. John chases him, because you know what definitely makes you uh, calmer is when someone starts chasing you. And the kid gets a boomstick. Yeah, it's a weapon, but yeah, it just looks like a long piece of rebar. Now, I will point out, this, this is the part where there's an issue. Mm-hmm. This is an alien planet, so presumably they don't have translator microbes. Ah, yeah, but this kid and John are speaking perfectly fine. Yes, I mean, he's listening with his heart. Some magic leaves did it, it's fine. Listening with the heart's contagious. I mean, honestly, it doesn't really bother me when I watch the episode, only when I think about it later, but I'm willing to believe that they have some sort of babblefish on this world so they can communicate with each other and that it translates for aliens. I assume the microbes were just fucking inside John, like, to make it so that John's speaking whatever language the kid is speaking. Ah, no. The way the translator microbes work is everybody speaks their own language, but John hears what they mean to say. Uh. So John should be able to understand this child, but this child should not be able to understand John. Yeah, okay. We speak Rigelian, which by which by coincidence happens to be exactly identical to English. I do like how the Simpsons got around that. Yes. It's time to speak the galactic standard. English. In Futurama terms. Yes. But despite the fact that he can't understand John, the boy just fires the weapon at him and knocks him to the ground. He space tases him. Yeah. Or I guess planet tases him. Yes, he planet tases him. So John is conscious but paralyzed on the ground. And the boy's mother comes running in. She's on the phone with the she- space agency because she's apparently the scientist who's been tracking the ship in the sky. And she's like, not now, Elliot. I'm on the phone with space planet nasa and then she sees john on the floor and drops her phone okay something i really like about this whole setup is that they're all just like old-timey farm people and stuff obviously they have some more advanced technology because of the satellites and stuff Uh uh-huh but the phone that she has is one of those old-timey phones where you hold the thing separate like you hold the earpiece separately from the yeah uh talking bit and i'm like oh because the ears oh yeah like, uh, Their phones wouldn't be shaped like our phones. Yeah. yeah. It's a very neat little touch. And uh, this is where it's sort of, you know, my least favorite episode of classic Twilight. This whole episode is basically a takeoff of my least favorite episode of classic Twilight. Okay, so first Zone. of all, I love the episode of Twilight Zone, where the woman is being tormented by invaders from space, but then it turns out that they're humans and that they're from Earth and that she is, in fact, the alien. 
But also, this isn't that episode because that's the twist at the end of the episode, whereas that's the premise of this episode. Yeah, this episode is a better take on that premise. Also, I also want to point out that Paralyzed John on the floor gives Ben Browder a little bit more opportunity to do physical acting. Oh yeah, he's leading a lot into, I can't really move except for my forehead and mouth. And like, maybe my hands a little bit. Yeah. Is he? I would not be surprised to find out that he was a trained physical clown. You know, I've never seen that anywhere, but no, I wouldn't be either. Especially, apparently the tase wears off pretty quickly because John stands back up, but it's a very shaky, clownish standing up. Fun fact, someone mentioned it, now I think about it every time I watch Twilight Zone. It's really fun to just imagine the ending setup with Rod Sterling coming out and saying, pretty fucked up, eh? <laughs> that, like, that makes almost every Twilight Zone better. I mean, that is essentially what happens, just like... With more words. With more words. It's the Christ wooden asshole. Of Twilight Zones. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm there. I'm with you. Which, if you don't know, uh, basically any New York, any New Yorker comic caption can be improved by replacing it with Christ, what an asshole. Okay, so that's the best one to replace it with. I will point out you can also replace them all with, would you like to join my LinkedIn network? And it works almost as well. What's fun about Christ What an Asshole, though, is that you can also do it for the last panel of any newspaper comic strip, and it also tends to work pretty well. Good to know. Christ, what an asshole. So John stands up and is like, hi, I'm John Crichton. I'm from Earth. And Ear Mom's like, I don't know what that is. Get get out of my house. Leave my son alone. She's like, oh my god, it's an alien! And she... You know, you know, it's funny how much she's worried about defending herself, given that she's the scientist who was tracking the ship. What was your end goal here? I want aliens to come so I can beat them up and call the government on them. Now, to be fair, John, using his bard skills, is really good on his feet, picking up on this exact thing, and says to her that he that she can't call the government because obviously they, the aliens knew that she was tracking them, and they came specifically to talk to her, not the government. Mm. She's the chosen one. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the ship, Xana's come to get Rigel to squirm through Moya's guts to try to do improvised brain surgery. Okay, well, Rigel is small. He's, he's... A puppet. Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. But also, he can fit through those panels. And... The DRDs can't go through the panel because the sensor attacks anything metal. So they're going to send, at least Pilot and Zan's plan is to send Rigel into the panel to begin to remove the sensor while they wait for everyone to come back. Because remember, we're on a time limit now. Hmm. And while they do this, Zan will use one of her priest powers, which is to share the pain of another creature so that, you know... Moya doesn't completely die while Rigel is doing this. And Rigel's like, the ship's really big. It's, like, really big. Can you actually do this? And Zane's like, eh. I mean, honestly, right? It's, yeah. Uh, Points to Zane for honesty. She's like, eh, eh, eh. I mean, I know they're under a deadline. I know Zane's just doing whatever she can, but this is one of the things that annoys me about Zan, because it's like, Zan, you can't, th- this ship is huge. This is your plan? This is not a good plan. I think her plan is, hey, 
we need to fill a bunch of extra time for, you know... We need a B-plot? We need a B-plot. We, like, this is apparently supposed to be the second episode. We just can't have half the cast not doing anything. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I just, I just, I feel like Zan's hubris at believing that she can share enough of the ship's pain to keep it from dying. When the ship is, like, the size of Manhattan, maybe... Maybe if she wasn't so hubristic, they could have spent five more minutes and come up with a slightly better plan. I don't know. I mean, I kind of see where she's coming from because, like, proportionally, the pain's going to be the same, right? Like, does the size of the creature really matter? I mean... Can a mouse feel pain as much as anything else? I, I guess that's a really good point. Okay. I mean, I would think the issue would be that they're literally cutting into its brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, like that episode of Scrubs where they try to do operation on... That woman who wants to use meditation instead of anesthetic. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, for a second it seems like it's working, and then it's like, oh no, you can't just cut into a person. That's why we invented anesthesia. I mean, you used to have to, which is horrifying to me i'm still scarred from the civil war battle scene in uh gone with the wind yeah the civil war hospital scene oof so back in the forest of the planet dargo and aaron are hiding out in a tree yes space wharf and aaron sitting in a tree not trying to touch each other because they're disgusted by one another yeah i'm not gonna spell that out it would take too long what's funny is they're they're sitting in the tree you know hating each other but then they bond over how useless john is <laughs> they're sitting in the tree and they're like do you think john's got what we need by now and targo's like man he sure is useless and aaron says can you imagine an entire planet of john's i want to give claudia black like so much credit for being if this is a thing a really funny straight man because she's not really telling jokes or anything. She's just saying things very deadpan and it's funny. Yes, she has an amazing deadpan. That is true. Like, in her comic timing, she's not... Because John is very expressive, clownish. His jokes are very broad. And hers aren't, but they're also equally funny, just kind of in a different way. Yeah. And, and I mean, just to, like... As long as we're on a Claudia Black praising tangent... Mm-hmm. On Stargate, Vala Maldoran is a completely different character, but she has the same, like, impeccable comedic timing. I'm kind of surprised I never saw her in, like, any straight comedies, because I feel like she would do really well in a, uh, as the sarcastic member of a friend group in a 90s, uh, sitcom. Well, I mean, she's Australian. Ah. Uh. So perhaps we need to watch some of these Australian shows that I'd never heard of. Uh. It's too bad we didn't start exporting Australians for American mainstream uh, stuff until the early 2000s. It is a shame. We were all on the Canadian train in the 90s. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, as I brought up last week, that I started watching Stargate specifically to get my Farscape fix. Mm -hmm. And it's like season six or seven before Ben Browder and Claudia Black show up on Stargate. Mm -hmm. I might show you some Stargate, but just jump to those seasons. I mean, I get it. There are people who use portals. There are aliens who pretend to be gods. You know. Yeah, that that's it. You know, that's, there's, there's a 
there's not a third thing. That's the, that's what Stargate is. Yeah, basically. Okay. So back on back in the farmhouse, John has convinced the woman to not call the government, but not to stop pointing the weapon at him. Yep. John's still using his bard skills. He's like, so are they going to dissect me? Because that's definitely what my people would do if an alien landed on my planet. I mean, I'm an alien. We don't do stuff like that. But what would, what do you think the government's going to do to me? A handsome man. (laughs) John tells her, you know, there are others, not like him, but there are others. He also tells her that he's there because he needs chlorium. But she has no idea what that is. Yeah, because the universal microbes aren't translating it to salt. salt. Yeah, spoiler alert. And then we have a great moment where she's like, look, you don't understand how amazing this is to us. To you, space travel is probably just a common, everyday thing, like getting in a car and driving down the road. But to me, it's still incredible. And John's like, huh, you'd be surprised. And she talks about how she's kind of disappointed because she's expecting something that's not just like a normal person but without the ear thing yeah yeah she was expecting like something i don't know alien and he's like look i'm also a scientist i can relate to you and look at how pretty i am come on he really is a bard yeah yeah he is also i mean ben browder is also very charming like if, uh, if Dargo had been the one sent to find the Chlorium, it would be the end of the series. Yes. So she's like, you didn't really choose me, did you? And he's like, well, I chose your radio tower, and your radio tower's kind of, re- kind of a reflection on what a brilliant scientist you are. And she's like, oh my. <laughs> but he also, tells, he also asks her if he can have all of her star charts because he's trying to find a way home. And... Elliot gets one of his, like, three lines where he's like, wait, don't you know where you are? Aren't you, like, a space guy? And he's like, well... Yeah. Oops. I'm like Christopher Columbus, but with less genocide. I mean, ideally, there'd be no genocide. I don't know what happens in the series. That's true. Fair. Fair. You don't know how much genocide there is. Okay. I mean, he already killed one dude last episode. Oh, my God. It's weird how the second episode, I mean... I said at the beginning that this episode really sets the the mission statement for the show, which is that, or or rather, it establishes that this is not a human-centric show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think it's important that this episode comes second. But it's interesting that it's also, in a lot of ways, an aberration for Farscape. You know, there are no puppet aliens. The planet is Earth-like. We don't even see any Krace in this episode. There's no insane military commander. Yeah, where's Steven Seagal? Poor, 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 poor Krace. Well, he... Steven Seagal in his prime, if that makes him... Okay. <laughs> so, meanwhile, Xanthope is using her brain powers to connect to the ship. And she has sent in Rigel with a bone knife because he can't use a regular knife. More like a boner knife. Yeah, no, because she says it was Dargo's. And Rigel gets grossed out and says, do you know what ceremony Luxons use this for? So that the rest of that is left up to the imagination. I know that you were thinking it's a circumcision thing. That's but what I was thinking. 
The fact that he still has it makes me think that it might be a sex thing. Well, they they use it. They do it on themselves when they become adults. Yeah, there's no reason he'd still have it though. Well, outside of I guess sentimental reasons. No, it's it's ceremonial and it's religious. The way like my mother still has my baptismal candle. Yeah, but you don't have it. You're not carrying, and you didn't take it to prison with you. It's true. I didn't take it to prison with me. Okay. Okay. Fair. Fair. Like, I'm not trying to say that he needs it for masturbation, but I'm heavily implying it. I mean, honestly, given how the Luxons work and how they express adulthood and things like that, it's probably more likely that it was used on his face tentacles than his genitals. Mm. Or is it circumcision is a thing you need to do every six months or so? horrifying (laughs) horrifying yeah okay so yeah the point is it's it's a knife that's used for pg-13 purposes that are not revealed to us just the fact that he's like don't they use it for a certain ceremony once they hit a certain age and zan's like i suspect he'll want it back unscathed made me think that it's for something ongoing rather than i guess no that makes sense yeah Oh, God, is it like a sounding knife? I don't know what that means, and I don't think I want to. I mean, you know what sounding is. No. Sounding is when you insert a rod up the urethra of the penis. I was (laughs) right. I didn't want to know that. So, so Zan is psychically hugging one of Moya's walls. Yeah, she she holds onto a pillar to, like... Well, okay, a lot of... a, A lot... Of their magic is done, a lot of their prayer magic is done by, like, pushing your forehead to the other person's forehead, but it's a ship, so she just, like, pushes her forehead to one of the pillars and, like, hugs it and takes its pain. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of kind of weird editing around it, like it's juping around her, which I I guess is the psychic connection happening. Yeah, and we're also meant to, to feel how much pain Moya is in with all of the sharp cuts. It does kind of remind me of, uh... That one bit in Heroes, when Greg Grunberg's character is trying to read someone's mind during the eclipse, when uh, all of their powers are off for whatever reason. Uh Uh-huh. And it just, it doesn't do the zoom in twist thing that it does when he's reading minds. It just has it as a still shot, but he's doing the weird facial expression he does. And a third third party character's like, what are you doing? Look, look, when you don't have the budget, you have to sell it with your face. Or fast cuts. Those are the two ways you can sell something if you don't have a budget. That's why Ben Browder chooses to sell things with his face. And for everyone else, we sell it with fast cuts. Well, I mean, I didn't really like Heroes at that point because Heroes had become bad. But it was really fun to kind of point out what a weird facial expression it is outside of the editing. Like, how weird it would be from a third-party perspective in-universe. Yeah, no, I do like... I think there were a couple of times on iZombie when we see the when we see the flashes that that Liv gets from outside of Liv. Yeah, or in Scrubs, the few times we see other people like what happens when JD is having one of his imagined dissociative sequences. episodes. It is sort of weird that they are legitimately dissociative episodes in universe. And no one ever is like, maybe you should get treatment for that. He works in a hospital. No one is worried. Okay, whatever. JD's friends are terrible, but so is he, so. Well, also his dad, because his dad's like, so really, you're still doing that after one of them? And it's like, you didn't, I mean, I know you were a bad dad, but 
therapy, maybe? Yeah, no, I mean, I like that in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, they call out that going into those musical fantasy numbers is a dissociative episode. And it's part of her diagnosis of bipolar. Although other people catch it. It's true. It's true. So... Do you want to join us for our imaginary song and dance? We cut briefly back to Dargo and Aaron. They've decided that they've waited long enough. Dargo's going to go to the farmhouse and find John, and Aaron's going to go back to the ship. Mm. And Aaron could just say she's going with Dargo to find John, but instead she says that she assumes he will fail and she'll have to come after him next. Like, you don't have to wait for that. You could just go with him. A rescue mission is easier uh, to pull off than a failed rescue mission is to subvert. Okay. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's weird that they separate for no reason. It made sense when the two of them separated from John because they were distracting the military guys while John went for the Chlorium. But there's no reason for the two of them to split the party right now. Hey, hey, hey. I'm done spending time with you. Okay. I need to be around people who aren't Space Wharf. Okay, okay. Okay, that is more than fair. Although I feel like she probably just would have said that. Yeah, she does. she's not a beat-around-the-bush type of person. I will say, in keeping with our this-is-basically-a-role-playing-game motif, you never split the party! You never split the party multiple times. Oh! Back in the farmhouse, the space planet woman, the planet woman... Planet mom. ...has decided to feed John, which is nice. And he's like, so, tell me about yourself. And... She's like, no, and he's like, come on, and she's like, okay, I work for the military, I have a kid I need to provide for, and I'm a scientist. Also, she lets us know that this is the kind of world where people don't really believe in aliens, so she's kind of on the fringes in doing her research. And she's like, yeah, I work for the military, but they're not great. They're sort of brutal, and they murder people a lot. And John's like, yeah, that's what I know what a military is. I know what a military is. She's spooning up some soup for him, which I have to say looks a lot like matzo ball soup to me. Yeah. It, it Watching her spoon that up makes me hungry for matzo ball soup. <laughs> so uh, she tells him that if she turned him in, then she'd be funded forever, and she wouldn't have to live in some crap shack in the middle of nowhere. And then John's analyzer starts beeping. Yeah, when she sets the, well, when she starts to set the bowl of soup down next to him, the analyzer goes off. And of course she freaks out, because, you know, that's scary. And he tries to explain to her, no, it's not a weapon, it's just an analyzer. And the thing we're looking for is in the food for some reason. He starts waving it around the kitchen, and he finds the jar you know that contains the stuff he's looking for and she's like salt you're looking for fucking table salt although honestly that is that is how a lot of alien encounter stories go you know like the thing that's joyful about an alien encounter story if you're the human Mm -hmm. is that the things that are normal to you are extraordinary to them well that's one of the things i really liked about the Three Boot Legion, the third incarnation of the Legion of Superheroes, was that it really played up how alien a lot of the kids were, uh-huh. and even the ones that looked human. Like they they make a big point out of the fact that uh, that Starboy looks human, but 
he can't eat sugar or he'll die because his body can't digest it properly. And part of the uh, gimmick of the Legion of Superheroes is sent uh, in that incarnation is like, hey, you're from a high gravity planet, so we're going to send you to this low gravity planet so you'll have super strength there. That's cool. I need to read more. Like, I need to. I need to read more Legion of Superheroes. It is good, and Three Boots. Three Boots really good, but I read it when I was a teenager, and it's very directed at teenagers. So I'm not sure how it will hold ah, up. Ah, I understand. I know what those comics sound like. But no, essentially, being the human in a first contact situation is exciting because you get to seem really cool when you're like. Sometimes water doesn't fall from the sky. And then she's, like, super impressed. And I genuinely think it's a brave choice for Farscape, instead of letting John be the human in the first contact situation, putting him in the position of, what is this thing you call salt? I think she's kind of... I mean, John overreacted a little bit, but she also super overreacted. Well, he... He knows what's up, so he hands her her gun so that she'll feel less freaked out. And he's like, look, I just need salt, and then I'll be out of your, I was going to say space hair, regular hair. Your planet hair. Planet hair. And then the military shows up. Yep, we hear the military cars approaching, so Planet Mom tells Elliot to take John to his room. And hide him amongst his stuffed animals. Yep, basically. Back on the ship, Zan's taking as much pain from the ship as she can, and Rigel's, you know, cutting the wires that he's supposed to cut, but obviously it's is a temporary fix because the ship is in a lot of pain, and it's shaking around, and the lights are flickering, and it's generally not good. In fact, Zan passes out from the amount of pain she's had to, to share. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to experience brain surgery. Yeah. Also, speaking of a horror movie... Uh, Rigel sees Zan unconscious and starts calling for Pilot, but Pilot's out of commission too. So now Rigel is on a ship where there is no power, no way to communicate with the ship. The only other person there is passed out. Like, it's fucking scary. If only there were two to three minutes the ship could use to recover. Yeah, well, the commercial break is important not just because it gives the ship time to recover, but because Rigel drags Zan back to her room, and there's no way that puppet could drag a human woman, so we don't need to see that happen. We just see her back in her room. The ship goes back online, but Moya's like, ah, you don't half perform brain surgery on someone, you asshole. Yeah, so it's it's bad. Meanwhile, John is bonding with Elliot in his room. He's like, you know, when I was a kid, I would have thought it was really fucking cool to meet an alien, but you're kind of incredibly passive here and the kid's like yeah i thought it would be cool to meet an alien too and yet here we are dang (laughs) so the military guy one of the military guys is talking to planet mom and he's like so you hiding any aliens and she's like no remember that one time you thought that there were aliens but it turned out that there wasn't aliens this is probably like that. He's like, why are you not more excited? Why are, why are you giving me scully face right now? You should be giving me, like, Mulder enthusiasm. He's like, you know how we all laugh at you all the time? We will totally stop laughing at you if this is real. Doesn't talk to women a lot, does he? I'm getting a weird vibe off their relationship. I definitely feel like there's a lot of history there. You think he's Elliot's dad? 
do we do we find out what happens to Elliot's dad? I don't remember. No, we never know. What, we never know what's up with Elliot's dad. Although maybe he is because the next scene is back in Elliot's room and Planet Mom comes in and tells Elliot to go talk to the commander because he's asking for him. So yeah, maybe he is Elliot's dad. Hmm. I definitely get a we are exes feeling from the two of them. I can see that. So Planet Mom tells Elliot to say nothing about the alien and Elliot's like, yeah, okay. And she she does, it's a, it's a very cute mom gesture where she boops him on the nose before sending him out and she takes his gun away. Yeah. <laughs> well, she takes his gun away because now she's going to stand with John. And I mean, as, as much as they're getting on, she's still not really going to face him without, without, without a weapon. And John's like, so he's not going to rat me out, is he? And, and Planet Mom's like, eh. She's like, he probably won't, but you're definitely going to get caught. And he's like, let me call my ship and tell them that what they're looking for is table salt, or what you call unlux. And she's like, really? And he's like, alien. What, do you, <laughs> what about this are you not getting? Alien. And like, didn't people used to use salt for surgeries? Like, Did they? I feel like that used to be a thing to fight infection. You'd pack a wound with salt. Um, salt is definitely an antiseptic, so I, that could definitely be. I've never heard of that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Speaking of people who probably need antiseptics. So back on the ship, Aaron comes to find, you know, the ship unresponsive, Zan unconscious, Rigel useless. And Aaron's like, okay, well, we have to take that thing out right now and take off. And Rigel's like, well, I'm not going to do it. And Aaron grabs him because he's a tiny puppet. She totally could. And he fucking bites a chunk of her arm off. It's really graphic. And he, pretty like, gross. He swallows the chunk of skin he bit off. Yeah. By the way, Aaron is showing no pain. She's just like, I'm gonna fucking kill you, Rigel. She actually says, your greatest fear will come to pass. You will die at the hands of a peacekeeper. And then she double-fistedly flips him off while uh, ollieing out of the scene. Yeah, I mean, it's fucking intense. And then she leaves, and Rigel's like, wait, let me get personal here. I'm super afraid that I'm going to fuck up and kill the ship, because that's very, very likely at this point, and I don't want the guilt of that on my conscience, especially because I'm, like, a king. I've literally never even had to dress myself. I definitely can't perform brain surgery. He talks about, basically, the horrors of affluenza he's like (laughs) yeah i've never had to do anything or you know been held responsible for my actions so i don't know how to do anything and i'm worried what will happen if my actions have consequences for me for the first time ever and zan's like hey grow the fuck up honestly zan is more compassionate than i would be because she she takes rigel's hand and is like i will share your pain and then she goes to talk to aaron and is like let me look at your massive wound that definitely needs to be treated. And Aaron's like, I'm fine. Just do your job. She's like, I can walk it off. Whatever. Why aren't you just psychically taking in all of the pain? And Zan's like, look, I can only take X amount of pain. I'm only a level nine. Pa'u. Yes. Thing. Like, I need to spend some time punching bats to get my level up before I could take more pain than that. Yeah. And then she gets all like, Aaron, are you worried about me? And Aaron's like, I'm worried that you can't do your fucking job. Do your fucking job, healer. Is this her job? Well, I mean, if they're a... Yeah. Yeah, if they're a party, yeah, this is her job. So back at the farmhouse, the military guy is calling the military and he's like, hey, I'm at the farmhouse and they are super duper hiding an alien here. 
And back in Elliot's room, Planet Mom is boosting her communications array so that John can communicate with his ship. He's been having trouble communicating with the ship even before he threw his communicator into the barn hay stuff because the ship is inside mud, so it's it's hard for it to deal. Yeah. And John tells Planet Mom, he's like, look, aliens are actually a super new thing to me too. Like, my planet literally just cracked space travel and I got flung halfway across the universe and ended up with a bunch of aliens. So, I get what you're feeling. Yeah. Like, samesies. John tries to communicate with the ship and he connects to pilot who shows up on the monitor which makes planet mom be like this is what i'm fucking talking about that is what an alien is supposed to look like meanwhile military guy is poking around at her dinner table looking for stuff that might be alieny he finds the particle analyzer and he's about to crack some sort of case but then one of his guys comes in and is like wait you have to see what's in the barn And then Elliot comes running into the room where John and Space Mom are and is like, oh my god, Mom, there's another one! And John's like, fucking Dargo. Fucking Dargo! And Dargo is out there and he's like, blah, 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 and they just tase him. Way to not use your space tongue guy. I think he did use his space tongue, just not effectively against a bunch of guys with tasers. I don't know. I mean, he's surrounded by guys. He, he takes a couple of them out, but he's just overwhelmed. I, I, I say that uh, Space Wharf went out like a punk. Is, is his warrior culture based around running directly at the threat and immediately getting taken out? Well, he's a tank, so yeah, he's supposed to run directly at the threat and draw it to him while other people in his party are attacking it, but there are no other people in his party. Aaron is on the ship with Zan, who's like gone into total meditative priest zone out while she takes the pain. She's entered full-on priest mode. Yes, full-on priest mode. And then Rigel is still cutting away in the guts, which, honestly, he's right to be worried. Yeah, I mean, brain surgeries, we have the joke, but brain surgery's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Dargo is chained up in the barn, and... The military guy's like... The military guy is like leaning close to him to kind of inspect him. But of course he's chained up, but his tongue isn't. So he slashes his tongue out. But the guy manages to jump back before he can get hit by the tongue. I think maybe he's still tased because I feel like the tongue could go a lot longer than that before. Also, it goes slower, I think, than it usually does. So yeah, he's definitely still tased. And the military guy's like, um, you should leave because... Uh, to, to Space Mom. Because this is super dangerous. And Space Mom's like, oh, that does look super dangerous. So she runs into Elliot's room to yell at John. She's like, you said you were a scientist. That guy's not a scientist. And John's like, yeah, I'm a scientist. He's an escaped criminal. We're an escaped criminal ship. Yeah, I mean, he didn't really lie to her. And even if he was a scientist, if you're going down to an alien planet, wouldn't you have, like... A dude there who could protect you who maybe isn't a scientist it's funny on on stargate Mm -hmm. they're always like whenever they meet alien races they're like we're explorers and a lot of times the alien races will be like then why do you have giant ass guns in case the things we're exploring try to kill us yeah right i mean indiana jones had a pistol yeah i mean he was he was both at the same time but like if you're exploring you 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 need to defend yourself. Yeah. Well, 
Planet Mom is not hearing any of it. So she throws a giant sack at John and is like, get the hell out of here. And she does, I mean, she's half mad, but she's also half worried. She's like, they are definitely going to cut Dargo open. So you need to go back to your ship and just leave him behind. And John's like, no, I'm super loyal right off the bat because I'm a good guy. And she's like, oh, damn it. That's <laughs> equal parts making me horny and angry. I'm, I'm hungry. I think that's when you're horny and hungry at the same time. Well, I can't say hangry because that's when you're hungry and angry. It's no good combination of these words that hasn't already been used. So Aaron is helping Zan. Okay, so Zan is so weak from taking the ship's pain that she's like falling down. So Aaron's physically holding her up against the ship. I feel like that's how priests die, but okay, whatever. Eh. Back in Elliot's room, Planet Mom shows Military Guy the video that she took of Pilot and is like, look, there are aliens. Which he, he knows there's, yeah, there's, you know, one in the garage. But also she said she figured out where the ship is. Uh. But then she sends him in like the entirely wrong direction, which is, you know, good. She's, she's covering for John, but... They know, because they were tracking the ship, that it crashed into the swamp. Honestly, I think this is a lot on the military for believing her. Seriously. So, the military guards are standing all around Space Wharf. When Elliot approaches slowly from behind, he picks up... John's communicator that he dropped earlier. Mm-hmm. And he sees John standing outside looking at him yeah it's funny because he sees john looking at him from outside the barn through the wide slats but it's a very similar shot to when he first saw john hiding behind the barrels Hmm. the scene goes on so much longer than it needs to he looks at john and john looks at him and he looks at john and john looks at him and then he looks at john and john looks at him some more and then the military guy comes in and is like hey uh half of you leave because we're gonna go find the ship and Elliot just starts slowly, slowly walking close to Dargo, and the military guys are like, hey kid, don't do that, but don't do anything to stop him. Yeah, they just keep standing there and they're like, eh, babysitting isn't really our job, and then John just shovels the military guys in the head. He picks up a planet shovel and shovels them, presumably not to death, but head wounds aren't great for you. Yeah, he comes up behind, yeah, you don't know how, they're Maybe their race is fine with head wounds. Yeah, if they got that extra cartilage or whatever. Yeah. Wait, no, that wouldn't be good. Cartilage breaks easier. Oh, I don't know. John shovels them in the back of the head, but I'm sure they're fine. And then Elliot, like, gives the communicator to Dargo and is, like, totally in awe of Dargo. And poor John's like, this is the kind of awe I was expecting to get from this alien kid. But no, Dargo gets it just because he looks like an alien. I'm sure you'll get it when the aliens get more puppety. Yeah, maybe. Except not, because John looks like a Sebation, which is the most common race in the, in the galaxy. Oh, sucks for you, John. <laughs> Meanwhile, the brain surgery is going... As well as you could expect unmedicated brain surgery to go. Unmedicated brain surgery being done by someone who is in no way a surgeon. Oh my god. And then, okay, it's funny because there's like a total time crunch right now, but apparently there's time for John to have this moment where he says goodbye to Planet Mom, and she lets him know that she sent the people to the wrong place, so they'll be able to take off, and she gives him a bunch of bags of table salt, and she's like, even though they didn't capture and dissect you, they know aliens exist now, so my life has changed forever, and everything is happy now, and then John's like, let me teach you about this thing we humans call kissing, and she's like, oh, that's gross. (laughs) Yeah, and he's like, 
you people don't do that and she's like nope okay i do but i liked it okay so she i no seriously let's dissect this scene she's been doing a lot of pretty solid facial acting it's all a little broad but it worked here she kind of pushes him away after he kisses her and is like is that how people where you're from say goodbye and she has this kind of look of disgust and he's like yeah isn't that what you do she shakes her head but then she like thinks about it and then she like kind of smiles and then she like licks her lips so uh guess what's being introduced to this planet now so meanwhile space wharf says goodbye to the kid and the kid's like mom are we ever gonna see them again and she's like eh probably not She's like, you are going to get to write an amazing memoir about this long after I'm dead and won't get into trouble for it. So back on the ship, things are falling apart, but it's okay. John and Dargo arrive just in time with the Chlorium so that they can, like, just spread it all over everything and everyone can go numb. Yeah. Erin has really good timing because she's like, John, she's like, Crichton, where are you? And John's like, I'm right here, right after you said that. Got the Chlorium. What's weird is they're spreading it all around so that Moya's not in pain anymore, but also they have to take off right now. So apparently she's numb, but not so numb that she can't get away. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, running after you've had your wisdom teeth out. Like, you can do it, but you probably shouldn't. Uh, okay, I, I think it's more like running after brain surgery. You can't do it, <laughs> but it's okay. But clearly they do. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, guess, I guess you do what you gotta do. The, the, the beacon has been completely removed. Moya is not going to die because, you know, chlorium everywhere. John sticks his head into Moya's brain hole and is like, Hey, Rigel, stop feeling good about yourself and start spreading the salt around everywhere. Well, I mean, it's probably most important to get the salt right where Rigel was. So we're no longer having an emergency. Rigel tastes some of the table salt, which is a, which is a nice touch. It is a nice touch. Also, also, um, we don't really see it until this scene where Rigel's spreading around, but the table salt is red. Hmm. So it is, it is an alien salt. Maybe it's paprika. Meanwhile, Aaron is, like, looking over Zan. Like, Zan is passed out and Aaron is making sure that she's okay. Because character development. I mean, she didn't not put her on the floor, but... Well, not that much development. <laughs> oh. But she made sure that she's not dead. And her, she's lying on the floor with her head right next to the access panel. So when Rigel comes out, they're both lying on the floor with, like, their heads next to each other. It's it's kind of a nice moment because while everyone was doing their thing on the planet, the two of them were holding shit together. Yeah, the two of them basically solved the main issue. Yeah, essentially. So they're taking off. Everyone runs into the control room. The bridge. The bridge. So that they can watch themselves take off out of the bog, which, as I said, should have been an issue. Like, but I guess there were enough issues in this episode, so they just take off. Everything's fine. Yeah, there were a lot of plots. Yeah, I guess we didn't need an additional stake where are they going to be able to achieve escape velocity. They just do. And then... Does Moya end up going on planets more in the future? No, no. Leviathans can't go on planets. Mm. But Planet Mom watches the ship take off and is like, oh, goodbye, my spaceman. I mean, she doesn't say that, but that's what her face says. She's probably going to get tortured to death by her government's uh, military. Yeah, probably. I, I just don't see a scenario. Like, she literally had aliens on her property, and she contacted aliens. I mean, maybe it'll end okay, but 
It feels like they kind of left her in a bad position. I, yeah, it, I mean, she she said everything's going to be okay, but you're right. It does seem like things are not going to go well for her. And then Aaron and John have another talk about how John misses Earth because he does. And Aaron's like, okay, whatever. Earth boy. If you love Earth so much, why don't you marry it? The end. So, that was fine. I like the pilot better. So I, I do think IET is not one of the strongest episodes, but is one of the most important, if that makes sense. setting the stage for the rest of the show. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was fine. I feel like it spent a lot of time dragging stuff out, but I feel like that might just be a thing with from, again, the limited Star Trek you've shown me. That might just be a thing that shows had to do back then well it is not the most action-packed episode and it's also not the most emotional episode because all of the emotional development that happens in the episode i mean there's some between zan and and rigel but most of the emotions that's happening are happening between john and planet mom and that's not that's not the emotion that we're interested in yeah and also it was just little things like him looking at the kid and the kid looking at him and him looking at the kid and the kid looking at him. I'm like, this scene could be like 40 seconds shorter and we would have got it. Not to bring it back to... It was the same thing I thought when we were watching Aquaman, where it was like, I would really like this if they had just cut maybe a fourth of it. I mean, it's true. If this had been a Netflix show, I mean, if it had magically been a Netflix show, because Netflix didn't have streaming shows in 1999, Mm -hmm. but if it had magically been a Netflix show and it wasn't bound to have every episode be exactly the same length of time it probably would have been a third as short and twice as good yeah but you know that's just that's just the uh the nature of the beast so our segments our first segment is a distant part of the universe which is what part of world building here really worked for you okay it it was a very small thing but the bit where the kid moves out of the shadows and you can see that despite having a human face, his ears were different, that did work for me. Out of the few I've seen, this wasn't really one of the more alien-focused episodes. It's true. It really wasn't, despite literally being called IET. But seeing, like, doing the pullback where you saw the kid having non-human ears was probably the thing that made me feel most alien. Not the light bulb with the different with a slightly different filament yeah to me the best world building was as i was discussing before the part where pilot was talking about the forbidden cargoes Mm. and for the reasons i mentioned before that this is a world where even though the ship is alive people don't consider it a living thing and so it gives you a real insight into how life is treated out here Our second segment, I almost feel like we need to skip this week, which is Strange Alien Creatures. Because we had no puppets this week other than Rigel and Pilot. Yeah, I mean, I guess the ears, but other than that, there wasn't really anything this week. Yeah, I mean, if anything, you could talk about the way the military guys, the, like, infantry military guys, wore those weird gas masks that had a very uh, Doctor Who feel from that one episode of Doctor Who. So that they wouldn't have to build prosthetics for all the extra guys. Yeah, exactly. Like, even the military commander guy, it felt like he had a hat that kind of covered up where the ear prosthetics would be. He definitely did. Um, But our last segment is looking for a way home, which is which part of this episode connected with you. Honestly, I did really like the bits where Zan was uh, working with both Rigel and Aaron. 
because while John is the bard, it really feels like at this point Zan is sort of the, I don't want to say emotional center, but she's the one who's stopping everyone from killing each other all the time. She is definitely that. Yeah. Like, she is, this is the wrong, this is the wrong time to use this term, but she is the peacekeeper of the group. And I really liked how she connected with both Aaron and Fish King. Rigel. Rigel. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that. Uh, for me, I just really liked all of the parts where John was talking to Planet Mom about what first contact means. Hmm. It's a little on the nose to say talking about first contact was the thing that made me feel connected to home, but here we are. So that should about do it, huh? Yeah, next week we're going to be talking about Exodus from Genesis. And the plot description on that is, Moya is invaded by spawning space bugs, which produce clones of the crew. To complicate matters, a peacekeeper retrieval squad arrives and Aaron begins to suffer heat delirium. Hmm. All right. So a lot of stuff happening in that next episode. Welcome to Welcome to the Uncharted Territories is partially listener supported. If you want to be one of those supporters, you can join our Patreon over at our website, www.welcometotelevision.net. We'd like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Sam, Cassidy, Alex, Alicia, Ryan, Maracruz, Rosa, Javier, and Benjamin. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you could always rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, like GoboFest did. Thank you, GoboFest. Oh, I thank mi- you. I might be mispronouncing that. I think that's right. Uh, if that's wrong, let us know. But thank you so much for the rating. It really helps the algorithm. Help other people find us. Yeah. If you want to talk about this episode, or any episode of any television show, you should join our Facebook group, Welcome to Television. We can also be contacted at I Love TV Zines on Twitter, or at I Love Television Zines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this has been Welcome to the Uncharted Territories. <laughs>